Hebrews chapter 13 to the final chapter, but there is a, a lot packed in here, and just be careful not to see these. this ending chapter is sort of something that's sort of all the important stuff is in the first 12 chapters, and then there's some information that Paul, or the writer, um, Hebrews says, um, all right, now do these things, because this all ties together. So before we go to the word of the Lord, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. We thank you for worshipers. We thank you for your spirit. We uh, pray now for the, the holy unction of the Holy Spirit, that you would be with the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word, that uh, we would be transformed more into the likeness and image of Christ, that we would know where we fall short. We'd see the grace and the power of the word of God, that it would enable us even today to, um, to be different people, to be transformative, transformers um, in our world, that we would shine as light and be as salt. So we thank you that you give us this time. Help us to not take it lightly and help us to recognize um, that you have established this for, for a purpose to, to mold your church. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So we're just going to do the first three verses here in chapter 13. So hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. The word of the Lord. So we're to remember... The letter of Hebrews, written to a small group of Christian Jewish believers who are worshiping now Jesus Christ, recognizing um, that he is the Messiah, has died for their sins, and for those who have um, recognized the great work of Jesus Christ, they have now um, committed all to him. They have forsaken everything else to follow Jesus Christ to truly be disciples, and it was causing them great turmoil, sacrifice, persecution. They've lost their families. They've been kicked out of the synagogues. They've uh, lost the, you know, I hate to repeat this every week, but you know, we had to keep it in our mind. They've lost the um, official sanctioning of the uh, recognition of their religion under Rome, and they've become very persecuted. Historically, we know these things, and are Nero, and terrible things that are yet to, uh, to happen to this church that Hebrews is being directly written to, but it's also being written to us to encourage us. It was written to encourage them to stay, to not leave, that the trials are worth it, that the persecution is not an indication that you're wrong. It's not an indication that you're on the wrong side of God's plan. It is, she's gone through some of it, is the discipline of the Lord, that God the Father is strengthening our faith, that God the Father is teaching us things about um, being more like Christ. And then some things happen just because we live in a fallen world, and some things happen because ultimately the world hates the church. And so as we see things, uh, as we see the culture attacking, you know, we see it set up, and however it's been presented to us, uh, liberal, conservative, left, right, these things. But as believers, we have to recognize that our... Um, battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, so that there is 
those who are outside of Christ and those who are inside of Christ, the children of Satan and the children of, of, of the seed, of God, of Christ. And so all these attacks on the light are attacks ultimately on the church, the demonic forces, the worldly forces um, that are attacking things that are right and true have their ultimate goal to destroy the church. Now that sounds conspiratorial. It can sound like, oh, I saw this political stuff. I'm not talking politics. I'm talking spiritual. We have to understand if you're a believer that there is a serpent in the garden whose goal was to destroy the creation of God at the root. And God said, well, guess what? That's how I'm going to save humanity is at the root. Ultimately, Jesus Christ as our Savior. So what we have to do then is say, all right, so all this um, spiritual stuff from the world is ultimately aimed at you. It's aimed at the church. So how shall we then live? And I borrow that title, How Should We Then Live, from Francis Schaeffer, who lived from... 1912, I think he died in 1984. He was a, a Presbyterian by um, denomination. He was a conservative evangelical um, intellectual writer. You should look up his books. You should read them. How Shall We Then Live? True Spirituality, um, different ones. He has a video series that you can get, I think Amazon Prime or something, one of those paid subscriptions so you can get it for free um, how should we then live um, he walks around like he lives in the Alps in the 17th century or something but he's got his knickers on and knickerbockers what do you call those short pants with the knickerbockers where none of us are old enough to know what those things are called. Um, so yeah, so and it's a little grainy, and it's a little. It's, it, it look. It reminds me of the type of shows that we they would show us when I was like in the fifth grade or sixth grade in school. It's kind of got that look to it. But the information is um, is timely and and and, and um, informative. But he was uh, one of the first. Well, the 1930s was a difficult time for, for Christianity, but it was also a time of um, great growth for the Reformed faith, for evangelical faith. All of the, and I'm going somewhere with all this, all of the intellectual, seminary, educational, scholarly material up until you start getting up around Francis Schaeffer's writings and you get into the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, you get in, it's, it's, it's liberal scholarship. The Bible's not true. Dietrich Bonhoeffer fought a lot against this. He came to the United States from Germany. He saw this. He's like, what are you guys doing listening to these German liberal theologians that I've been fighting against? And I come over here and you guys are thinking this is you know, what we ought to be doing in all of our churches. And so he went to New York and visited a lot of churches, and he said, the only church that I can find the spirit and the gospel to be alive in are in the black churches. He said, and that's where he would go and he would worship. And then finally he went back to Germany during Hitler's reign because he said, I can't abandon my people. It's safer here. His family lived in the... Um, the upper echelons of the, the government, so they understood what was happening before a lot of people did. And... Um, 
And so Bonhoeffer was one of the first ones to begin to recognize this need for us to say something is happening in this world that is terribly going wrong, so that the worldview of people is really turning in a different direction. Francis Schaeffer picks up on this, and Francis Schaeffer has a lot of writings, and I've, I've got a little bit, some stuff I've paraphrased or quoted from here, but he says, um, he, he saw the need of the church to strengthen itself against the oncoming um, onslaught of what he defined and has been defined as humanism. It's the belief that man decides for himself right and wrong. And remember, this is written back in the, the 70s, late 70s and maybe early 80s. It's the belief that man decides for himself right and wrong, or even if there is such a thing as right and wrong, instead of a value system based on the infinite personal God who is there and has spoken, who provides an absolute by which we can conduct our lives and by which we can judge society. Schaefer says this leads to freedom without chaos. So we want freedom, but following the absolutes of God, finding the values of, of an omnipotent um, God who is there and has spoken, that's how you have true freedom without chaos. What he began to see, and it was, he would see it in art, architecture, and all these things beginning to seep into the general culture, was everybody wanted freedom but it was a freedom that was going to cause chaos. And so there's a godly freedom and there's an ungodly freedom that only leads to chaos and bondage. So he saw today coming, he saw the day coming where values are based on personal peace and personal happiness with the desire, the desire to be personally unaffected by the world's problems. He warned that when we live by these values, we will be tempted to sacrifice our freedoms in exchange for an authoritarian government who will provide the relative who will provide these relative values. He further warned that this government will not be obvious like the fascistic regimes of the 20th century, such as in Germany and in Russia, China, but will be based on manipulation and subtle forms of information control and psychology. And it's like <laughs> that's pretty good for somebody that lived before the internet. And he noted that as we live in an increasingly secular world, that the promises of personal peace, personal peace and wealth and abundance will be the greatest threats to the church from the inside. So as he's recognizing dangers without, He's also seeing dangers within. And he asked this question, will we believe and live authentic biblical Christianity? He called it true truth. Will we live out this? Or will we abandon the faith and abandon one another? Because being a Christian should impact the way we think and feel and act in every area of life, every single area that we live in, that we participate in, um, should be affected and is affected by your faith system. So you can examine how you think, how you feel, how you decide in all these different areas of your life and you can say, since I've done this, since I've decided that, since I say this, that's what I really believe because we act on our true beliefs. You can say, I believe that bridge is completely safe. You go first. And it's like, okay, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But the guy that charges across it first, 
you can tell what he believes by what he does. And so we can tell what we believe by what we do, regardless of what we say and even tell ourselves. So we have to make sure that we are living out Christ in the world, in our life, and that is going to be contrary to what the culture is teaching and accepting more and more. In 2 Peter 3.11, Peter's writing about the day of judgment, all these things that will be destroyed, these, these current things that will be no more. And he says, therefore, since these things are true, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So he's assuming you should live holy lives. You should leave, leave, lead godly lives. And then the question is, what's that look like? What are lives of holiness? What are lives of godliness in a time of persecution and trial? This country compared to many other countries, is not experiencing persecution like that. And that's why our churches are weak. That's why our personal faith is weaker, because it's times of persecution and trial that you really dig in and figure out what's going on. Now, we all go through trials, and we all go through different types of persecution. Um, there's, there's always that sort of thing. Those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted, it says. But we have lived in a bit of a bubble here in the United States in our churches. And that has made us somewhat soft. It has messed up some of our theology. It's messed up the way our churches bring people in. Um, if nobody sees a need for the gospel, if the church is not the answer to the world's problems, then how do you get people to come to church? Well, you have to make it look like it gives the solution that the world thinks it needs, that we've got that. What does the world need? And what does it want? It wants to be left alone. It wants to have peace. It wants to be able to do what it wants, when it wants, how it wants, give me more, give it now, and I don't have to pay anything for it. It's like, you know, and so what's the church do? Come on in, the water's fine. We love you. What kind of music do you like? We got that too. How do you want to dress? That's perfectly okay. You want to, um, how do you want to live your life? You can do that. You know, we don't want to, you know, go on and on and on. What do you do? Because if we continue to have the church, the, the church is always supposed to be casting nets, casting nets, going into the world, rescuing people. But instead what we've done is we, we try to become like the world so that we gradually, they gradually become us rather than they gradually becoming what am I trying to say? We want them to gradually become like us as we work and live together. But what happens is we gradually become like them. And so you have to be very careful with that. And sometimes we have good reasons for why we think it and why we don't think it. So the word of God has to be our guide as to how we live and how we act and what do we do. So when troubles come, whether it's persecution or just regular trials, we still have to ask this question, how do we live? What do we do? And Hebrews is addressing this same question, particularly here. We've seen it sporadically in Hebrews, but now particularly given what we've learned about the holiness of God, how Jesus and the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, how Jesus is superior and much more um, highly to be worshipped than the angels, than, than Moses, than any of the Old Testament prophets. And given the truth of persecution and difficulties that being Christians can cause, how should we then live? And what the writer wants to make sure 
that he's saying is stay close to Christ and to one another. Love one another as Christ has loved you. So that whenever somebody's talking, one of the things you're supposed to do is you're listening and trying to figure out what they're saying is the first thing they say and the last thing they say. Make sure you get those because that can be the most important part. You're reading a book. You have your introduction. You have your conclusion. So in the book of Hebrews, you look and say, all right, what's he leaving us with? This is the last things he's having to say. It ends with a blessing. And typically whenever you're reading these letters in the, um, <clears throat> in the New Testament, they all tend toward the end of so so how do we live so what do we do because what we believe and what we know should and will cause us to behave in particular ways and so he's telling us when there is external stress it's going to cause internal stress and you can allow outside problems to destroy what happens inside uh, and we'll talk about that a little more but John, 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we've passed out of life in, we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So this love for other believers is something that helps us to see, gosh, <laughs> is not something that I typically would have done as an unbeliever. And then in John 13.35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, it doesn't just say if you act lovingly toward one another. It talks about having love for one another. So there's truth that when you love somebody, you're supposed to act lovingly toward them. But you should actually, it, it, it is difficult to do a loving thing for somebody that you really hate. Because even that loving thing is going to come across as hypocritical, as spiteful, or whatever. It's like you have to have a sincere love. For the brothers, this is called Philadelphia. That's the word. Philos is love. Delphos is brother. So brotherly love. We have to have this, this brotherly love for one another. And we'll talk in a minute about love for outsiders because they're based on different things and they have different objects as their different ends as the, the purpose for it. But love for one another demonstrates the reality and power of the gospel. The life and death of God the Son for us and his resurrection giving us justification, forgiveness of sins, having the Holy Spirit making us more like Christ and when the outsiders, the Bible says, when outsiders see how we love one another, that will make a difference as to what they believe about what we do. <clears throat> it may be that we are in such a good place in our church right now that somebody would come in and say, wow, you guys really do love one another. It's like, that's cool. But you know, we ain't all the Christians that there is. I had to say it like that. Hey, why'd you make a face? My grammar is off. We are not the only Christians that are, which are. There are Christians over there in that church. There's Christians over there in that church. There's Christians over there in that country. There's Christians over here in this country. There are Christians that don't quite agree with some things that we agree with. And there's some Christians that behave in some ways that we don't quite like. So, what we have to do is recognize the fact there are some churches that are not churches but are synagogues of Satan. You need to be able to say, what are the true marks of the church? But you're not hating them. You're loving them in such a way that you're trying to bring them to the, real, to the true truth. To pray for, to preach for, to let people know. It's like, I'm not hating these people any more than I hate any other type of person who's lost. But a false Christian, a false convert, a false denomination, or a false church leads many people to hell. And so Jesus called that out. He tells us to, to 
call that out. You have to be able to do it in faith and in love and know what you're talking about. And not just, I don't like these people, but that the Bible says this and the Bible says that. And I'm happy to listen and talk about and pray about differences that we would have. But one of the differences is going to be you don't even believe the Bible. And so that's one of the places that we start is with a belief in the word of God as being the word of God. But as these things happen, whether it be whatever the external threats or problems or issues are, the writer of Hebrews is like, you need to love one another, the brothers. You're going to have to cling closely. There have been people who've gone to um, uh, conferences that are put on by, you know, general, uh, the churches or something in general so you have liberal churches and conservative churches and I heard one of my Presbyterian professors at seminary said you know there's pro there's differences between us and Baptist he said but when I go to some of these conferences <laughs> these people don't believe the Bible and we look around I see my Baptist brother across the way it's like one of those love stories where you just run in towards each other in slow motion <laughs> oh my brother my sister and hugging each other it's like because we have the commonality of belief in Jesus Christ belief in the word of God and belief that we are saved by him and we possess the Holy Spirit and we will one day be in heaven worshiping with him surrounded by people who call themselves Christian and religious who do not believe in those things and so we must make sure we believe in those things and that we extend brotherly love to one another and why would he say that and it's because that stuff starts cause problems in here and you've got to make sure you're loving each other and not just in here but all believers so we have to love internally and that's the word Philadelphia um, don't take the outside stressors out on your family and don't abandon your family and that applies to your home as well as to your church and it's very easy a lot of the problems we see in the home is not, is you got outside problems and you're bringing it home you're not dealing with it or you have things problems outside of the church and you're bringing it to the church and you're causing all this sort of problem so we have to love one another through that and make sure that we're not causing a problem and that we do deal with the problem um, causers in a loving way and that we're helping them too. Psalm 133 is sung, um, I think the ARP, the Associate Reform Presbyterian Church, sings this at their General Assembly every year. Um, we had an ARP seminary professor who would have us to sing this song at the end of our class sometimes. It's Psalm 133 <clears throat> And I think it was sung to. What song is that? What's that? I knew my penis would be able to get through my terrible scene. Behold how good and pleasant is when brothers dwell in unity. See, it's rewritten so that you can sing it to the thing. But how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar onto his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, the mountain, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And we're called to this, to pursue this, as a divine call and to recognize that brotherly love and care for one another is a defense against persecution and trials from wherever they may come. 
And so this is one of the things we have to have. You isolate yourself or you get isolated. Um, it's a, you've, you're like the charcoal on the grill that you take, put over here by itself. It grows cold first and the others are still heating one another. So we have to make sure we're together. And George Whitfield writes, or wrote, How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided? The will to let brotherly love remain is a divine duty. And this is what the Holy Spirit has been saying to the church in Hebrews. And just listen, um, Hebrews 3.12. This is not the first time that the Holy Spirit is saying this through the letter of Hebrews. Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, y'all, an evil, unbelieving heart leading y'all to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of y'all may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we're supposed to be working together towards this. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 16. 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days declared to the Lord. I will put my my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And if we have more time, we see this concept of neglect. What are we neglecting? Don't neglect the, to, to, to meet together. Don't neglect brotherly love. Don't neglect to care for strangers. Um, he's telling us that these things that we need to continue to do. And then in chapter 10 here, verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle and sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, which is what he's going to tell them to do next, and they're already doing it. Um, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And in verse 39, he reminds us, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. And then chapter 11, the great faith chapter, he's saying, look at these Old Testament saints. They did all these things by faith. You need faith. So 11, chapter 4, he says this. I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, it's very interesting how that's worded, though he died. Well, how did he die? 
Well, that guy right there, Cain, killed him. And what was their relationship? Brothers. It's the first fratricide, it's called. Latin frater. Frater is brother. So fraternities. It's the it's the word for brother. So fraters, fratricide, murdering your brother. Now, a lot of us might have felt like that. I have a sister. I'm sure she felt like doing that from time to time, but we didn't do it. This is literal one brother murdering another brother. And what are we called to do? Love your brothers. Love your brothers. Don't hate your brothers. Don't get jealous of your brothers. Don't get resentful of your brothers. Don't let problems arise. Don't let a root of bitterness come up. Love your brothers. Love your brothers. <laughs> continue. Let brotherly love continue. And then chapter 12 beginning in verse 12. Told about all these things that are happening, but all that God has done is to lift drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So caring for the internal body of believers as with these external things are happening is don't neglect it. It's very easy when we have problems out there. Maybe they're directed at different people individually. Maybe they're directed at Christians in general. Even could be one day this church in particular. But when these external things happen, it's just funny how we start to fight each other. Stan's told me one of the sayings they heard a long time ago, if you ain't, if you ain't fishing, you're fighting. Okay, so if you're not out there trying to share the gospel and do work in the world, then you just start to get in here and all you start to do is bicker and, you know, we start to nasal gaze and look at ourselves and we just become, you know, bitter against each other. And, and we will give each other lots of reasons for that, but we have to remember the Bible says, love the brothers. You have to love um, one another internally because there's external stresses and this is what the Holy Spirit would have for us. Brotherly love is a defense against the attacks of Satan. So one, we love internally, and second, we see we're to love externally. And this is in uh, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So let's talk about the angels things first, because that's where people get a lot of you know, that's, we see that, and then we're like, that's all we talk about. You mean sometimes we entertain uh, strangers and they could be angels? It's like, so what you do is grammatical historical analysis. There's a big word. So when you were sitting in the church that the letter to Hebrews was first read to, how would you hear that? That's the way we want to hear it. What, when, when the writer wrote that, what did he want them to think? And so you're talking to, to Jewish believers that were very well knew their Torah. They knew their Old Testament. They knew these stories. And, and they've been reminded throughout the letter of Hebrews of all these things. Think Bible. Think Old Testament. Think this. And so we're supposed to, to love, show hospitality to strangers. And that word is philozenos. So you're supposed to have... Uh, Philadelphia, brotherly love, but you also should have philozenos, philozenos, uh, love of strangers. They use the word xenophobia, f 
fear of strangers or foreigners to mean, you know, somebody that hates foreigners or people who are different. But what we're told to do is love strangers, philozenos, to, to love strangers. And so the word, in the original language, it doesn't say show hospitality to strangers. It says philozenos. It's just a word. <laughs> love strangers. Have that kind of love for those who are outside. Those who are a part of us. Those we don't know. Those who are attacking us. They may be enemies. They may be people who are indifferent to us. But they are those who are outside. Because thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So how do we hear that? Well, Abraham had three friends that came up. And he was, uh, uh, it, it showed hospitality toward them. And it turns out they were angels. One who said it's actually Yahweh. So pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So um, Gideon met an angel under the oaks. Um, Samson's mother met an angel. And so he's like, remember back in the Old Testament, I told you to be like these people. These people cared for outsiders. These people didn't see somebody coming up at a distance, and they sent guards out and said, strike them down before they get too close where you got to huddle up. It's like, no. That's how a lot of good things happened in the Old Testament. Some entertain angels. Now, maybe we do. I mean... And then there's also the idea, somebody's externals, you don't know what God's doing with them. The, how would Christ see the stranger? How does Christ see the foreigner to us? And um, so you have to say, well, how does he see us? And there's with this type of love that he has. It's with a, you know, reading in this book that talks about, it's in that book, Gentle and Lowly. He says that you, um, Jesus sees people in sin and he has pity for them. And there will be a time if they die in their sin, there'll be the wrath of God upon that. But for us to have pity and love for those who are different enough to try to understand their predicament, try to see what they're thinking, try to understand them better in order that we might better share the gospel with them, that we can contextualize it to their problems and their issues while we keep the truth of the gospel um, forefront of these things. But he's like, don't neglect to show hospitality, don't neglect to philozenos, to love, don't have xenophobia, have xenolove, love people. So hospitality is through the Spirit. It's a gift too. Some people have greater abilities of it than others because the Holy Spirit sees it as so important. It's always been a calling of God's people. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield has a book that we've a lot of people have read here called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she says this, God used an invitation to dinner in a modest home from a humble couple who lived out the gospel daily, simply, and authentically. She says, such hospitality sees our homes as not our own, but as God's tools for the furtherance of his kingdom as we welcome strangers, sometimes helping them to see what the Christian faith really looks like. And it's sad that some Christians don't desire that kind of intimacy, that some people, I mean, we probably all know people maybe even who in this church, you've never been inside their house. You're not sure where they live. Um, and it's sad. I'm not going to condemn them. It's just some people just, they have a lot of trouble with that kind of thing. But it's like, that should be atypical. That should not be the way we are as Christians. We need to be praying for people like that and seeking to encourage them to, you know, how do we love people like that? But we should be... Um, inviting people into our homes we should be loving people we should be you should find strangers you do all this safely and wisely but you need to be able to be open and encouraging into these things and then we see ourselves well we have this pandemic we can't do that how long has it been a year 
How much of the gospel are we losing because we can't get people in the homes? How much of the gospel are we losing because we have people who are not in prison, but they are imprisoned in nursing homes or hospitals or in their own houses and things? And, and I'm not saying these things are right or these things are wrong. I'm saying these things are not good, that this is a bitter providence that our world is under. And so something, God is at work and he's teaching something. And I do not want to presume to say this is what God's doing and this is what God's teaching, but I know a part of it is, one, you are not in control of this world. Science does not have an answer for everything. You are going to die of something. And look how badly people need interpersonal relationships and fellowship and communion and being together. This is all from the Lord. And as the church, we should be the first ones crying out on our knees, oh Lord God, please put an end to this. Not so that we don't die, but so that we can once again be with people, smell like sheep, rubbing up against people who are not like us, shaking hands, hugging, crying, weeping, these things. We have to be able to share our lives with people or there's this force field thing that happens. And I'm not telling you what to do or how to do that. But you let your conscience be your guide, you let the spirit be the guide, and we need to pray that we are enabled in some way to be the church during this time in a right way that is loving, that is guided by the Holy Spirit. And you can't come across passages like this that command us to behave in certain ways. And we get to verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Literally, it says as if you're bound with them. They've been in the use, and in context, this is most likely people who are in prison for their faith. They've been carried away, they've been put in prison. When you were in prison back then, it wasn't like life was better for some people. That was, they, and it wasn't like they collect, the government collected taxes to care for these prisoners. They put you in prison and you better have some kind of support system of somebody that's going to bring you food, bring you stuff and talk to you. That's why Paul was so, when he was in prison, he's like, thank God for Timothy. Thank you guys for caring about me. Send the parchment, send my letters, send the books, especially my cloak. Where's my, you know, because he's like, you got to care for the people who are in prison, especially during that time, because without it, they died. There was nothing else. And so we had to be careful because the government does a good job of that. Well, the government does a lot for people that can cause people in that situation to feel like they don't need anything else. And so we have to recognize people who are in bonds and people who are in prisons of whatever kind or whatever making, and I could say even for whatever reason, but particularly brothers who are arrested because they're in the faith or something. But you need to have an empathy for people where, I mean, Bill Clinton had a very good line, I feel your pain. You know, and that's what we're supposed to do, feel people's pain. And so if we recognize the pain that's involved in this, he's saying, remember them. And so the beautiful thing about this is, you find yourself imprisoned. And, and so there are believers. China, I mean, if you keep up with the church, the true church, what's happening in China, not the, 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 the government-sanctioned churches, but the churches that are like, we're going to meet no matter what. You know, I mean, they're not worried about the virus necessarily killing them. They're worried about the government killing them, putting them in prison and, and leaving them there without any kind of representation or anything. And they're not abandoned. They're addressed in Scripture. 
and they're telling the church, you remember them. So we have to remember them. It's not just people in your congregation. It's people all over the world. There are people all over the world who are being, uh, there's people in Haiti that we'll see that have become Christians, and their family, they're gone. You are no longer in my family. Get out of my house. Get out of my home. Get out of my business. Get out of, we care nothing for you. And when you live in a community that actually does, you don't get a check from the government. You, um, there's not a whole lot of economic stuff going on. So you depend on friends. You depend on family. And suddenly you become a Christian. And some people look at it and they go, wow, the Christians are doing an awful lot of stuff. They're helping start businesses. They're doing a lot of medical stuff. They're doing this. It's like it, it does not compare to what they're losing by coming to Christ and so we're to care for them we're to pray for them we're to pray for our brothers and sisters in China pray for our brothers and sisters in Japan in Iran in Iraq and all these places where the church is doing much better than we are in some ways and we have the financial ability we have the travel ability do you see how missionaries have trouble getting out going if it were not if we didn't have a clear understanding that God's in control, it would be like, God is lost, Satan is one, what do we do? But God's in control, and so we're, we must be found faithful. And what we do is, you make sure you're loving one another, and you make sure you're loving strangers, and you're showing hospitality, and you're doing good for them, and you remember those who are in prison, you remember who, those who are trapped at home, remember those who can't get out, remember people who are going through all sorts of problems, so that we are compassionate with them to remember that Christ, while we were yet sinners, he died for us, took our place on the cross, left his home in heaven to live a life of, of sinless poverty and humility so that he could uh, relate and connect to the common people and be able to, to bring them to the faith. And we fail at this sometimes, and so we need his forgiveness. We need forgiveness from one another. If you've been wronged by people, the proper reaction to that as a Christian is grace, forgiveness, love. That's how we respond. You address issues, but at the same time, um, it's not out of an anger. It's not out of resentment. It's not out of these things. It's out of a compassion that we have for one another and that we're always exhibiting the grace of God. We are to pursue the Holy Spirit and pursue truth by pursuing brotherly love in Christ, by entertaining strangers, because Christ pursued us when we were strangers and by not abandoning those who are suffering for the faith or in different situations in different cultures and places Jesus loves the church and so should we and there's one thing I read Jesus loved the church enough to die for it we should love it enough to be patient with it and so that's something that we all need to learn because we're forgiven in Christ we have a restored relationship with God the Father so that we might love the world enough to share our lives with it and the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us grace and blessing and engrafting us into your church. Help us to love one another and not just the lovable people who are like us, but the ones who get on our nerves, the ones who are different enough than us that kind of makes us feel a little funny, that kind of makes us feel like maybe I don't, you know, the, the difficulties of the flesh that cause us to want to gravitate towards people who are more like us. Lord, help the spirit to gravitate us towards the, the broken, the hurt, that, that, that we would be like um, first, first responders, 
running into these problems because we know we have help. And if the building falls down on us, the building falls down on us because we're called to, to do our duty. So, Lord, help us as the church, as Christians, to be at least as committed as firemen, police officers, doctors, nurses, all these people who say, I will go into danger because it is my calling. This is our calling, to love one another, to love as strangers, to remember those who are in prison, and to be more like you in every way. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body that they may kill. God's grace enables still. So we thank you. And as we come to your table where you tell us this gospel we're hearing, this working together, this loving together, this is, this is something that binds us together and gives us grace to make us different and changed people. Help us not to, to dig out cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Help us to come to you, the living fountain. And we pray this, that we would be living fountains of the Holy Spirit pouring out our lives to others too. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.